0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Leadership in Action, that is us. We're on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yuseem, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change here, and Faculty Director of the McNulty Leadership Center. I'm with Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of that same program. And we are focused, as you know, on leadership in action, how to get it, how to exercise it. And now to join in that uh Dialogue has been going on for a couple of years, Anne. Yes, I'd like to welcome uh, Rodney Zemmel who is in the studio with us. Hello, Rodney. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> Great to have you here, Rodney. You're a senior partner in McKinsey, and your managing partner for McKinsey for New York, Boston, and Stamford. And I'm often, as I have noticed uh, that that description before of you uh, uh, of you before. I'm thinking you're having to manage uh, Red Sox Nation and Yankee Kingdom, uh, <laughs> and true. everything else in between. Yes. But in any case, um, Rodney, uh, of special interest though tonight is the book that you have co-authored. And, by the way, full disclosure on my part, I'm a co-author with you on the book. <laughs> but we're going to focus on um, Rodney on this book called "Go Long: Why Long-Term Thinking Is Your Best Term Strat- Best Short-Term Strategy." And Rodney, just to get us going on that. What brought about the book? Why why did you write the book?
2: Um, The book came from a conversation that we had at uh, CEO Academy. And for those of you who aren't familiar with CEO Academy, it's a forum that we convene once a year for CEOs and board chairs uh, to talk about issues that are of importance to them. Uh, It started really as kind of a training forum for early tenure CEOs, but it's evolved a bit just to become a kind of a uh, a good conversation forum. And over the last few years, this topic of, um, you know, short term versus long term. Is it really a trade off? How to manage for the, how to manage for the long term has really been a strong theme in the conversation. And a few of us were talking about it after the event and said, you know, it would be a great topic for a book. And in particular, mm. what we thought is there have been a lot of books that have been written on it from the investing point of view. This is, you know, what are the benefits of focusing on from the long term from an investing standpoint? But from a managerial standpoint, there was almost nothing. So that was mm-hmm. the gap we were looking mm-hmm. to fill.
1: Mm-hmm. And in going about filling that gap, just to say, focus on the, on the book's creation itself, uh, I do know directly that you went to more than half a dozen CEOs to kind of hear their story. So why did you choose that method to bring this out managerially as opposed to a, a survey or
2: some other methodology? Um. We thought it'd be more interesting. Yeah, um, that's great. It's also, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's by definition kind of a qualitative topic, right? It's pretty hard to look at what are the, the, the hard, the hard measures of how people have chosen to focus on the long term versus the short term. So we thought, let's try and find the dramatic stories where people have done it. And let's see if we can extrapolate some general lessons from the dramatic stories. Yep.
0: Terrific. Hmm. Rodney, so mm. nice to have you on the show. At the top of the seven o'clock hour, Mike asked me a question about what constitutes long term. So, can you speak to that? When you say long term, what do you have in mind?
2: So, I think it actually depends on the industry, okay. right? So, there are some industries with really short product life cycles. So, if you're in consumer electronics, you know, long term might mean two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, if you're in pharmaceuticals, long term might mean ten years or longer. Um, the typical holding period for an equity in the U.S. now is less than one year. So we almost certainly mm-hmm. mean more than one year. And I'd say most people probably think of it as, you know, five years, five years plus.
0: Mm, very good. And in interviewing the CEOs that you spoke with, um, did you begin to find patterns in the conversations? And so say, say a little bit more about that process.
2: So the stories were actually very different. So at first, it was quite hard to find patterns. Uh, We did get to some, and I'll I'll come to that. But, um, you know, the story of Ivan Seidenberg at Verizon making a $150 billion bet to build out a new network, um, or, you know, Larry Merlo uh, walking away from $2 billion from choosing not to sell cigarettes in CVS anymore. I mean, those are kind of different ends of the spectrum in terms of immediacy of uh, of the decision. Um, But I I think we we did see some patterns emerge and maybe the the, the clearest pattern was uh, around passion and conviction. Hmm. So a senior leader, a chief executive who really has conviction about the long term direction of the company. Um, and in some cases, that might be a societal passion, but I think in all cases, it's also a business passion, right? This isn't a book about corporate social responsibility, important though that is. This is a book about how CEOs attempted to create value and create successful mm-hmm. companies by taking a longer term time horizon.
0: So maybe maybe talk a little bit about the CVS decision.
2: Um, so this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So mm-hmm. the, the history here is, you know, everybody knows CVS as the, um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the convenience store right. that people would go to for their, uh, uh, for their acute and also their chronic prescriptions, but also the pharmacy benefit manager, um, Caremark that they bought some years back. And, uh, the story that Larry told was, um, over a, a number of years as they looked at the mix of business and what was really driving value and what was going to drive value in the future. They saw themselves becoming more and more a healthcare company. Mm. And in the US, it's been absolutely the industry standard for a long time for pharmacies to sell cigarettes. And CVS did. And CVS That's at right. the time was making, I think, a billion and a half in tobacco and another 500 million in terms of what those customers who were coming in for tobacco also bought. And he and his board uh, and his management team debated it for a long time. I think he said they spent more than a year debating it. And they realized it was just inconsistent with their future vision. So, you know, the act to say we're not going to sell cigarettes anymore was not in itself a strategy. It was a step on the way to the strategy of moving from being mm-hmm. a convenience store to a healthcare company. And they thought if they're going to succeed as a healthcare company, they need to uh, make those kinds of bold decisions.
0: Mm, that's a great, wonderful example.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and Randy, maybe just backing up mm-hmm. for a minute. Let's stay with uh, Larry Merlo, at uh, CBS chief executive officer, based in Rhode Island. The headquarters, as I recall, some seventy five hundred stores across uh, North America. Huge corporation. And just uh, maybe take us into his world, and reference, if you would, the kind of short term pressures that he does feel. Mm-hmm. Are they coming from the board? Or are they coming from within him within himself? Employees, how, how, how does a CEO feel the short-term drumbeat?
2: Sure. So, you know, he was quite passionate as he told us the story. I think I said passion was a, was a, was a common theme. So, yes, an enormously distributed organization. I think it was 7,700 stores at the time. I think it's closer to 10,000 stores now. Um, and a business that was very operationally focused. And Larry himself was a, is a pharmacist and grew up in the stores and through excelling in mm. store operations. Mm. So, you know, the month by month, quarter by quarter, how each store was doing was incredibly important. And they were really in a dogfight with a couple of the other big pharmacy retailers who are, um, you know, have a very similar product mix. And I think as they were having this dialogue with their board about evolving the strategy, um, you know, this... this Conversation around how the product makes it evolve, and in particular if they're going to partner with uh, healthcare organizations. At the time, it was partnering with hospital systems and partnering with health plans. Obviously, now it's uh, potentially going to be acquiring a health plan uh, with Aetna. Um, it was clear that there was that inconsistency there. And it sounds like he was, um, you know, lucky and or skilled in being able to get his board to a place where the board was very much focused on doing what's right for the long term. Mm-hmm. And they were able to structure the board conversations where they would have a strategy conversation that was distinct from a performance conversation. And as he tells the story, and I'm sure it was, you know, his art that got to that, he got a lot of support both individually and collectively from board members and didn't take the decision until he spent time with all of them mm-hmm. getting them there. And then what was interesting is they're being such an operationally focused company was how they chose to execute on the decision, right? Because he made the mm. point that, you know, if they executed 99% on it, you know, that would still be, uh, you know, 77 stores that would have cigarettes in the next day and there would still be some, you know, gotcha newspaper headline about oh, it. Yeah. So their ability to execute to 100% and get them all out of the stores from one day to the next, I think it was... October 1st, 2014 or something, was just excellent execution um, and was coordinated as part of a repositioning um, campaign for the company. Now, he also chose a moment to do it when the company was doing very well. And, you know, they announced it at a quarter where they were announcing generally good news. The market reaction, as he described it, was not positive in the short term. I think the stock was down 7% on the back of what was otherwise good news. Um, but what he would say is it's ultimately – yeah, I'm sure the story is still playing out, but I think there's absolutely no regrets uh, on their mind as to uh, the importance that it had in redirecting the company towards healthcare and having them pull, pull away from the competition in that direction.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Ronnie, a quick question on that, then back over mm-hmm. to Anne. The board was supportive when they got into the discussion uh, in large part. You said it uh, very directly because the strategy made sense. If they're going to be branded – as a healthcare company, broadly defined, having tobacco out of the stores made sense. So I can see that the board members being drawn to that. I would guess, and maybe you could comment on this, that many employees, maybe for more personal reasons, were happy to see tobacco go. They may not have been uh, drawn to that as a product they wanted to spend their life helping to sell. But the 7% drop in the stock price is now... Potentially worrisome because uh, while the board was supportive, employees might have gone with it. It sounds like the equity market was not so enthusiastic and, in fact, did not appreciate the long term benefits.
2: What do you think? Yeah, so, um, you know, it came from a place of strategy and a place of purpose. And Larry had a very nice uh, phrase when we uh, interviewed him about it um, saying that, you know, every company has a purpose. Uh, but it's rare to be able to find kind of a bold action to, to you know to put behind that purpose, right? And as I think about a lot of the the, the the companies that I've come to know, you know, every company has an inspiring purpose and mission statement. But when you say, "What have you actually mm-hmm. done to move the needle on that?" it mm-hmm. tends to get a little fuzzier, right? So this mm-hmm. kind of dramatic action mm-hmm. that says, "Here's who we are. Here's who we're going to be. You know, we're going to really show people that." I think was very energizing and empowering to employees. I know it wasn't kind of unanimously, or it took a while for the management team to unanimously agree with it. So I'm sure there were dissenters. And, you know, I, I don't know what their reaction to, to, the, to the to the stock price was, but I, I expect that there was a, a belief that, uh, you know, while the short-term owners of the stock might do what short-term owners of the stock do, they were looking to cultivate more long-term owners uh, and people who really understood the future healthcare direction.
0: Rodney, I, I so appreciate your response to that question. You read my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, not long ago, uh, Mike and I had a conversation um, about Indra Nui
1: Of PepsiCo. PepsiCo,
0: CEO and chairman of PepsiCo, who made the bold move towards more nutritious products, took artificial sweetener out of Products and she had a mantra that she repeated over and over again. And if I have it right, Mike, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Performance with purpose, (laughs) and that's exactly what I'm hearing you say in describing the the bold move of, you know, Larry of CVS.
2: So I think that's exactly right. Um, Now in healthcare or in food, uh, and we have Paul Pullman of Unilever in the book as another example. Um, I think it, it's e- it's easy for purpose to be a societal purpose mm-hmm. but I, I think I wouldn't want your listeners to take away that you can only focus on the long term if you have a purpose that's other than a uh, kind of a business purpose mm-hmm. right? I think in some of our other examples you know this was the, you know these were straightforward uh, capitalist decisions mm-hmm. you know people yeah. who of course want to do things that mm-hmm. are good for their customers and good for their um, uh, for their employees mm-hmm. but they're making decisions that really are shareholder value focused but it's long-term shareholder value not a short-term mm-hmm. shareholder value. How about Verizon? Well, so that would be one I was thinking. Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting about the Verizon story. And, um, you know, I'm not a, 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 an expert in the telecom industry. So I'll just, you know, I'll say what we heard from Ivan sure. and, my, mm-hmm. and the commentary from some of my mm-hmm. colleagues on the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, this was an in, it, intensely competitive uh, market um, and a market where um, return on capital was significantly threatened. Um, and if I recall... Um, he became CEO, um, you know, kind of, you, you know, it, it, it wasn't at the strongest time uh, in, in the markets, and it was certainly yeah. a, a kind of an out there move to say, let's really see what we can do to jump ahead of the competition, do the whole FiOS network build out, and let's focus on metrics instead of um, instead of kind of. All the short-term metrics that uh, that they need to talk about in the quarterly calls, or maybe not instead of, as well as, mm-hmm. he said he was singularly focused on one metric: growth in market share. So not even market share, growth in market share. Mm-hmm. He said for every line of business, you know, how are we, you know, what what is our month-to-month, year-to-year change in market share, and what do we need to do to do to, to change that? And if we don't have a plan to change that, then we don't really we don't really have a strategy. And he saw this as a bet that was going to you know, take a long time to pay off, but would significantly reposition the company, frankly, for the next generation. It might even be a bet that you know the next CEO would benefit from rather than him. Uh, but it was the right thing to do in terms of uh, driving growth and market share that he thought was the right strategy for the long-term shareholder value creation. Hmm. Mm.
1: Rodney, right, I just need to take a minute sure. here to remind our listeners that this is leadership in action, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School. I'm Mike Useem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And we're talking with Rodney Zemel, senior partner of McKinsey and co-author of Go Long, subtitle: Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy. And Rodney, uh, let's, you briefly you mentioned Paul Pullman along the way. Let's take a couple minutes to understand what he did. He's the chief executive of Unilever. Most Americans won't necessarily recognize that name, but they have purchased Ben & Jerry's ice cream and a whole lot of other products that Unilever makes uh, on a scale of Procter & Gamble. And uh, just uh, kind of tell us his story and what he did and why he was going
2: long. So this is a really—I mean—they're all remarkable in their in in their own way, but maybe this is one of the ones I was less familiar with before we wrote the book, so therefore I find it more remarkable. Um, So he stepped in as CEO um, after the financial crisis, Mm -hmm. um, and at a time when it was pretty tough to be a diversified food conglomerate, um, and the pressure was all around—you know—where to find uh, those—you know—those next few points of growth and how to continue to take costs out. Uh, and how to prune the portfolio, and kind of you know w- what do you need to do to kind of stabilize the business in a pretty rough time. And the the way um, Paul tells the story is what he did was he went back to the heritage of the company, <laughs> and he looked at the history of uh, of, um, of of Mr. Lever of the Lever family, and found an incredibly <laughs> philanthropic history uh, around a company that was really uh, built around looking after its workers, looking after its society. Uh, and bringing forward products that we're going to do good in the world, and he said he wanted to really refocus the company around that there 's a very dramatic story about an early board meeting that he held in port Sunlight uh, which is a you know a reasonably um, um uh, at the time, a reasonably depressed area in the and the, the northwest of England, actually not too far from where I grew up in Manchester, mm. yeah. um, and uh, took the board there to really show that it was kind of a back-to-basics strategy in terms of the purpose and mission of the company. And then he refocused the whole company around the topic of sustainability. Uh, and for him, it was not about having a great corporate social responsibility department that can tell the message, mm. but it was really about making the whole company focus on sustainability. Uh, and focus on products that were going to help people achieve that, and work all the way through the supply chain to make sure they were they were working on things in a in a sustainable way. Um, he would say it drew you know incredible dividends in terms of employee engagement, mm-hmm. in terms of the talent mm-hmm. they were able to attract, and what was not necessarily the most glamorous of industries, uh, and in terms of real focus and the results that Unilever has had in the intervening time period are incredibly impressive they've been um, among the highest if not the highest performing um, stock in their uh, in their category um, uh, with a, an incredible degree of consistency uh, to that for most of the uh, most of the time period, uh, and he gives a lot of the credit uh, to the sustainability strategy. Now, it, it is fair to say that um, you know there there, there are um, some of their investors uh, would say that you know sustainability is is nice, but it's not actually what's driven the company. And certainly, when 3G took a run at the company, they believed it was an expensive luxury. Uh, 3G being the Brazilian uh, uh, private equity firm who've been extremely Mm -hmm. successful, uh, but have a reputation for being uh, aggressive uh, Mm -hmm. cost cutters. Um, And, uh, you know, the way the press around the story goes and the way uh, he tells the story, of course, we don't know 3G side of the story, but the way he tells the story is uh, they came in with an aggressive proposition around uh, around cost reduction and refocusing Mm -hmm. of the company. Uh, and uh, in his mind, really moving away from the sustainability mission, and he was able to fight them off by mm-hmm. convincing the investors and convincing um, the the board that the path they were on was the right one, and that the past results have spoken uh, for themselves. Now, you know, some people would say mm-hmm. uh, if he was a U.S. domiciled company, uh, would it have been a tougher situation to defend? And I think that's a that's a, a reasonable mm-hmm. discussion. Uh, but certainly, he was uh, defending from a position of strength.
1: By the way, uh, turning the baton over to Anna just a second, a common thread, as you've described, Ivan Seidenberg, uh, Paul Pullman, and of course, Larry Merlo at CVS is an ability of all three of these chief executives to offer up a compelling story. Uh, It's a big story. Here's where we're going, here's where we came from. uh, And if we take a deep breath, step back a bit, uh stay with me. We're going to take some short term uh, losses, but uh, longer term, if it's a compelling story, even the t- most tough-minded investors, certainly directors and employees, do seem to buy in. What, what do you think?
2: So this uh, this theme of being a, a great being needing to be a great yeah. storyteller. Um, to me was most reinforced by uh by our interview with Larry Fink from uh from BlackRock and also by Alan Malally, um uh mm-hmm. the former Ford CEO mm-hmm. and uh Boeing uh commercial aviation uh, head. And uh, Alan had this uh, fantastic phrase uh, that said that the biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it occurs. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it's <a kind> of <laughs> summary. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yes, and and he, he makes a point that you know it's the obligation of the teller to make sure it's yeah. it's it's conveyed, and not of the listener to understand it. Mm-hmm. And you know they just they didn't use these words, but listening to them, it kind of it almost sounds like you're a political candidate and you need yeah. your stump speech. And what people who come at this from the investor side will say is, you know, companies will say they have a long-term strategy and there's always a PowerPoint presentation mm-hmm. with the long-term strategy in it. But without the CEO's clear and consistent and compelling presentation of what that strategy is, repeated many times, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, it's hard for it to have much of an impact. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Mike read my mind. I was just interested in how these CEOs make the case and is it influence plus data? How do they how do they do
2: it? Um so i think it varies mm-hmm. i mean certainly um you know certainly it's data right mm-hmm. i think uh you know a uh, a long term you know i think there's a there's a difference between a long term vision and an illusion yeah um yeah. and i think also you know linking the long term to the short term mm-hmm. um you know jack welsh um there's a famous jack welsh quote around um you know, it's easy to manage for the short term. It's easy to manage for the long term. You know, the art is in getting the balance right, right? And that's that's. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm misquoting slightly, <laughs> but that certainly came through in the in in the interviews. And uh, you know, one thought is um, instead of making the long term strategy presentation a kind of one time event for a, mm-hmm. for a CEO, I think a number of people who came at this from the investor side were saying, look, every quarter. Yes, we want to hear, or every year, yes, we want to hear the results, but we want to hear the results in the context of the long-term mm-hmm. strategy. So remind us where you're trying to go, tell us how you actually did, and then put that in the context of the long-term strategy goals that uh, that, that, mm-hmm. that you're putting together.
1: Mm-hmm. Ronnie, if I can just uh, allude to a study that was published a couple of years ago that makes exactly the same point. The researchers, two of them, looked at the several days after a company had made Mm. a large downsizing announcement. And the the narrow view of the world is when costs are cut, investors Mm -hmm. like it, stock price goes up. But what they found Mm. is that a decision to downsize, or actually upsize, it went both ways, if there's a story behind why they're doing that, stock goes up. If they hire a lot of people or fire a lot of people, and there's no underlying Mm -hmm. story, the price next couple days of trading does go down. Exactly your point. Mm.
2: Yes, although I think one thing that doing the research for this book has helped me realize is I'm probably never going to look at another kind of three days before, three days after stock price <laughs> study again, right? <laughs> <Okay>. because, <laughs> even though so our colleagues yes. here do that, yeah. uh, of course. Yes. And at so, McKinsey do too, Yeah, to yeah be fair. of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: exactly. And just say why. I, I think I know the point, but just bring it out. So, so if,
2: <laughs> it's interesting. If you look at what's really moving the market, right, month to month, week to week, it's short-term owners, but year-to-year, it's long-term yeah. owners. And what our analysis will say is 75% of the market, and here I'm talking mm-hmm. about the U.S. equity market, is held by long-term owners, or at least people who claim to be long-term owners. So that would be index funds, that would be funds who have professed mm-hmm. long-term strategies, uh, and that would generally be retail investors, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the 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 short termers the activists, the hedge funds and so on, although there are many many of them it's roughly a quarter of the market so what that means is your you know kind of your near term volatility is going to be driven by the short termers but it's the long termers who will determine your your, your value mm-hmm. over the mm-hmm. uh, over the over the longer run and these mm-hmm. things take time to play out right I think if you're going to jump up and down on two day stock price movements it's a, it's really? a, a tough day to leave to lead your it's life whole yeah. plenty of your book right there <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: well um, I appreciate your comment on on that, because you're showing how you're separating out the managerial decisions and the leadership decisions from the financial decisions. And yet, at the same time, the CEO needs to, to contextualize that long-term decision with the financials. I guess, how do you... My, this is a maybe a mystery question, but how do you know the long-term... <laughs> The (laughs) long-term people in the stock market from the short-term. You just have to wait it out. (laughs) Is that right?
2: So, um, actually, I think you can can do a little better than that, right? Because I think, you know, certainly there are different types Mm. of funds, right? So funds will have different professed strategies, right? And not every fund does what it says on the tin, right? So there's many Mm -hmm. a fund that will say they're a long-term value fund, but if you look at their average holding period... There are, there, are nothing like that, right? But I think you can actually look at trading behavior okay. and who holds for longer times versus who holds for shorter times, and also as a, as a as a company, you can choose how you spend your time with investors. Another thing in the Ivan Se- uh, Seidenberg interview that I've heard from others as well mm-hmm. is. You know, there's a tendency, it's easy to spend a lot of your time with the sell side, right? Because the sell mm-hmm. side are writing the reports, the sell side are looking for the stories. Uh, but the, the CEOs who are more long-term oriented will say that they spend their time more with the buy side. Now, you've got to mm-hmm. talk to the sell side, but they might have their IR department do that, or they might do that less frequently. And they're focused on the buy side and on the kind of on the longer term funds. And in addition, you know, you, it, it, it's your choice what, what metrics you show. I mean, there'll be a certain set of kind of industry standard short-term metrics that you'll need to, ser- need to show. But it's, it's our strong belief that companies should be thinking about both performance and health metrics. Mm-hmm. So performance will be, you know, obviously anything that kind of links to the financials of the company that you need to disclose on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And health will be a measure of how are you progressing against the long-term strategy. Um, I thought um, Bill McNabb uh, had a fantastic example of this when he was talking about the uh, the, the long-term strategy that, that Vanguard mm-hmm. followed. And uh, he mentioned two metrics, um, uh, three metrics, um, that I think we'd put in the category of health metrics. One was employee engagement, because they thought that was going to make a difference for them. Uh, the second was uh, customer um, satisfaction. I think they used an NPS-type metric. Um, And then the third was just the overall cost basis of the funds and a belief that they needed to halve that over, I can't remember, it was a 10-year or a 20-year period. And they thought, you know, those three numbers, although none of them are numbers that, you know, an equity analyst would typically be focused on, are numbers that were critical components of their long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. All right, Ron. Just, uh,
1: actually, let's just hold that thought for a minute. We're Mm -hmm. going to come back on that very point. And I've got a question to bridge across Mm -hmm. the break here as follows. Uh, You chronicle in the book uh, a half dozen, actually more than a half dozen people who've kind of fought against the the tide. They kind of push back against all these pressures coming from the equity market. Do you think that this issue is going to be more troublesome in the years to come? With the rise of investor activism, there is a trend there that maybe says all the more important to start thinking long term because it's going to be tougher in the future. We'll come back to that In the meantime, I just want to remind everybody that I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. You are listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Stay tuned. We'll have more with Rodney Zemmel after the break. Welcome back. Leadership in Action Series, XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, where we are based. I'm your host, Mike Yaseem. I'm with Anne Greenall, and we are in conversation with Rodney Zemel, senior partner at McKinsey, and co-author of the new book "Go Long: Why Long-Term Thinking Is Your Best Short-Term Strategy." And Rodney, kind of picking up from uh, before the break, a couple threads here uh, and throwing throwing them now back at you. Uh, you've mentioned. Bill McNabb, who had been chief executive at Vanguard, some $5 trillion under assets. He's a long-term investor, almost by definition, because so many of his funds are in the so-called index funds that invest in all companies. Uh, for the book, you also interviewed uh, Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, which is close to $6 trillion under management. And they both have taken the view in public and in, in conversations with you and your co-authors that it is really important for this uh, long-term thinking to prevail, because that's ultimately how Amazon became Amazon, is how, ultimately how CVS is going to prosper. That said, is the rise of investor activism a very significant counterpoint? And where do you see that going?
2: So there's a couple of different uh, themes in there, right? So one is um, the, the rise of the indexes, and then the other is the rise of the activists. So maybe we'll start on the activist one and come back to the the, the indexes. So certainly in most boardrooms in the last three, four years, this whole topic of activist investors, maybe even one, three, four years, this whole topic of activist investors has been a huge one. Um, it's a more complicated one than meets the eye, right? So first of all, hmm. activist tends to be a synonym for short-termers. And actually, there's a very mixed bag of activists out there. And some uh, would behave uh, very much like long-term value investors, Uh, And others, uh, you know, much closer to what the stereotype of a slash and burn activist Mm -hmm. uh, might be. Um, And uh, there's certainly um, a lot of debate around what's the real impact they're having on companies' strategies. And there's a very common uh, and I think very effective exercise. uh, And um, a couple of our interviewees talked about having done it. Of, uh, you know, doing kind of the activist role play, right? Imagine mm-hmm. an activist mm-hmm. was, uh, was in your boardroom. Imagine an activist had a position in your stock. What would they do and what does that mean for your, uh, for yeah. your strategy? And, uh, what's interesting having been through a few of these is, um, you know, there's part of what you need to do, which is out activist the activist, which mm-hmm. is, you know, you cannot use, a long-term or a purported long-term focus as an excuse for uh, sloppy, uh, sloppy hmm. management, right? If there are costs that should be cut, if there are efficiencies that should be captured, saying you're focused on the long-term is not an excuse for not doing that. So at that level, you have to out-activate the activists. Uh, but I'd say the other point, and maybe the more powerful point is You need to be out there with your own long-term story about where you're going and get your core investors to uh, believe and be excited by your long-term story and have the metrics, both the performance and health metrics for that Mm -hmm. long-term story. Uh, In place uh, as your best defense against Hmm. activists who might come in and suggest a different course of action. And by the way, if activists come in and suggest a different course of action, you know, our usual suggestion would be, you know, listen to them first, because every now and again, they're 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 right. Right. And there's a there's a range Hmm. of different activists out there.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Well, Indra Nui, who I've been reading about, <laughs> says at her activists uh, are essentially free consulting, <laughs> 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 which I thought was a really no, wonderful a good, way of way looking at it because it can, if you, and I like your thinking, if you play out activists, the activists, then you're being this kind of devil a- advocate to your own uh, operation and thinking, how can I actually do this more efficiently? So how about then if so help me with this and i'm really i'm i'm the naive one here hmm. if the long term strategy is works and it's an advisable strategy how do we get people to do
2: it so that's a great question and maybe we should start with, you know, what are the reasons why people don't do it, right? Okay, and, and, what's yes. v- and what's valid and, you know, what isn't valid in those reasons. Right. So the most common reason when you talk to executives, uh, whether it's CEOs, whether it's other mm. executives is they say it's, uh, it's capital markets pressure, right? It's investors. So 87% of executives say that they feel the greatest pressure over the next two years. Right. And a very similar number, 86% say, that they will make better resource allocation decisions if they take a longer-term lens than the next two years. Mm-hmm. So they feel trapped mm-hmm. by the capital markets. What's interesting is it becomes one of those uh, kind of odd, kind of he said, she said situations, because yeah. when you talk to investors, what investors will <laughs> not always but often <laughs> say is, CEOs are too short-term focused. We want them to be more long-term focused, mm-hmm. and we don't want them to you know just tell us quarter over quarter. We want to know you know where they're going and what's the story and you know you might say that's easy to say so we did a little kind of thought experiment to uh, to test uh, how uh, companies and how investors might react to certain circumstances so we laid out um a scenario we said imagine you've got a company where uh, 70% of its uh, of its earnings uh, come from an uh come from uh, xus come from overseas mm-hmm. investments mm-hmm. and imagine there's a foreign currency movement uh, such that um, you're uh, you're gonna have a ten percent decline in your in your earnings because of that mm-hmm. what do you do and when we asked um, executives that question executives of public companies um, 76 uh, uh Sorry, 60% of executives executives said, oh, well, if that happens, we've got to cut costs, right? We'll cut costs in the U.S. business, we'll cut costs overseas, you know, we'll do, you know, we'll we'll hold off on investments, we'll do something to meet the numbers that we've committed, right?
0: Okay, and right away. So quick action. Right. Even
2: though, you know, foreign exchange it's kind of the dictionary definition of uh, an external act that had nothing to do with management. Right. When we ask the same question to investors, 76% of (laughs) investors said they should do nothing. Hmm. They should explain it, right? They should explain why they're off and, you know, why it's Forex and not a, you know, not a, not a business issue and put it in the context of the long-term strategy. Now, there is that 24%, which interestingly mapped to that percentage of investors on average that we thought are short-termists hmm. who thought they should do something, but it's way less than the number of, uh, the number of, uh, of, 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 managers who thought that. Now, what was interesting was, or what we found interesting, we then repeated the experiment <laughs> with private companies rather than public companies. Ah and when you do it with private company executives instead of the 60% of executives who say we should do something only 30% say we should it. do something
0: right okay so they're a little more conf- confident feeling they're more the master of their of their own ships yes exactly yes. so now rodney you've given this percentage before and let me dig a little bit deeper the long term investors roughly 75% short term roughly 25% who makes up
2: both of those parties so in the so what we categorize as long term mm-hmm. is uh, all the index funds, uh, which is a you know a new phenomena and is now yeah. kind of a double digit percentage of the market. Uh, there's different statistics for it out there, but you know r- r- roughly kind of low double digits. Mm-hmm. Um, we categorize uh, funds that call themselves long term or value investors. And Bill McNab made a you know interesting point. You know that's they may say that that's not always what they are. Right. But I think that's very right. fair. Um, and then mm. in addition to that, most retail investors. And obviously there are some, you know, day traders out there who are retail investors, but there's a lot of buy and hold as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the short termers would then be the hedge funds, um, many of the activists and so on. Right. Um, and on hedge funds, you know, it's interesting. There are now twice mm. as many hedge funds in the U.S., more than twice as many hedge funds in the U.S. as there are public companies. Mm. Ooh. Mm.
0: All right. So sh- is that worrisome? Does that is that one of the... Barriers towards a long-term strategy.
2: So, I think that's part of you know. I think that the noise that that creates is part of why you hear managers saying it's very hard to focus on the long term because of the investor pressure, the investor noise. But you know, if you believe, and you know, it's an if, you believe the analysis that says actually they're driving the short-term volatility, but they're not driving the long-term all that much. Then that you know, then then um, that 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 would say you know. Don't 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 get overly focused on them and uh, kind of you know wait wait them out and uh, you know have, have a strategy. And you can clearly hear it's been interesting. As we've done these discussions. We've it, it almost felt like there's been a, a, a kind of a somewhat adversarial conversation between uh, the Larry Finks and the Bill McNabs and between uh, some of the uh, the more the more short term investors in the market on kind of what the right you know the the, the right approach to, to capitalism is.
0: Right. Okay. And so from the point of view of the hedge, hedge fund. They're doing a service. <laughs> they are. They are helping make lean, mean <laughs> organizations. No, I, no I,
2: I, absolutely. And again, you know, there's, there's, it's a broad category, yes, right? So right. you know, it's easy to, to stare at that. But it, but not with the hedge fund, with an activist. We had a very interesting discussion uh, once in one of our forums with um, uh, a uh, with an activist who said, "Look, you know, you've got to be really careful with these focus on the long term arguments because um, there's actually nothing." That makes sense in the long term that doesn't also make sense in the short term. Hmm. And all the short term is, is the sum of, all the long term is rather, is the sum of the short terms. So I'll believe your long term strategy if I believe your short term strategy.
0: Well, that brings us back to your Jack Welsh quote, linking the short run to the long, to the long term.
2: Yes. And, you know, I think, you know, what that activist said, you know, may be true in many cases. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the big r and d investments when you look at the big capital investments right it's 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 it gets hard for me to believe that, that, that it, it, you know that there really isn't that the, the, the trade off there very
1: good mike uh, just and i just want to quickly intervene and yeah. remind all of our listeners that this is leadership in action i'm mike usem i'm with Anne greenhall here and we're speaking with rodney Zemmel, senior partner at mckinsey and co-author of go long why long term thinking is your best Tor- best short term strategy I'm, I'm,
2: I'm glad we have the, uh, the reminders <laughs> for people with short term memory that the topic is long term exactly. thinking. Exactly. Including us. <laughs> so,
1: uh, but actually, that leads to uh, my question as follows. And I know you, you work directly with many chief executives. And I'm thinking if I'm a chief executive and I hear these some favorable trends, but some worrisome trends out there, and I do genuinely want to build my enterprise for the next century then what's the CEO next door to do? That's my question. (laughs) Right. And one thing that's sort of gone through your commentary is that they have to become really good about knowing their story and then equally good at articulating the story. So my question is let's think about what makes a great story. And by story, I think we're really talking about what's what's the company's short-term and long-term strategy. So breaking that down a bit, if a chief executive says, uh, "Rodney, I want to become more persuasive. If I need it, let's say I've got it. How do I more effectively communicate my strategy story?" Um,
2: well, I think it starts with courage, right? Which is easy <laughs> for me to say as an advisor, right? Yeah. I'm sure it's very different when you're in the uh, in the CEO seat. Yeah. Um, but but it it starts with <laughs> courage. with courage and uh, uh, and and and, uh, and and therefore the conviction to stay with the story. Um, I think it then goes to uh, metrics, right? And um, you know, a story without metrics is not going to be that compelling. I mean, it's nice to have a bold, uh, you know, a bold a bold vision, right? And Alan Mulally talked about the vision for his Ford turnaround. Um, the, you know, about, uh, you know, highways for all Americans uh, that was, you know, in- incredibly, uh, in- incredibly compelling. But I think without the profitable growth for all and the specific mm-hmm. um, operating metrics that went underneath that, it might have been a little bit less compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point that, you know, I made earlier and I'll make again is that in those metrics, it's not just the performance metrics. It's the mm-hmm. performance and health metrics. And by health, it's not just touchy-feely stuff. So, you know, you cut... Um, um, uh, employee engagement, as a, as one example, that can be a that can be a good example, but it it, it, mm. it can also be, uh, it, it 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 can be market share. It can be um, uh, actually another really good one um, came from um, George Buckley at 3M, where he uh, got uh, maniacally focused on uh, share of revenues that came from products launched in the last five years. Mm. Mm. Right. So, you know, it wasn't just mm. about the revenue or the growth rate, it was really about the quality of the new revenue that the, the company had. Right. Mm. So those health metrics that go with the performance metrics. And then look, you need your board behind you, right? And if you look at mm. how boards spend time on long term strategy, when you know when we do surveys of how boards spend their time, they'll almost always say we want to spend more time on strategy. And they almost always estimate that they're spending less time on strategy Mm -hmm. than the CEO thinks they're spending, than management thinks they're spending on strategy. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is the strategy conversation conversation is often uh, too um, episodic rather than continuous uh, and is often really a performance management or a near-term conversation rather than a long-term, you know, where is the industry going and where are we going in it conversation.
1: I've got a related point then over to Anne very quickly. Uh, for the book, you interviewed um, Maggie Wilderotter, who had run a company herself, Frontier Communications, but it presently serves on a bunch of very large company boards, including Costco and HP Enterprise. And she has said, as you've got her quoted there in the book, that the board can play a vital role here. If the, if the board itself is short-term focused, good luck to the CEO who wants to go beyond that. But if the board is open to thinking about five eight years out that makes an enormous difference so pick up a net if you would around the question is the board kind of an ally when it comes to longer term thinking potentially or in fact what do you think
2: so it should be right and again I'll draw a contrast between public markets and private equity boards mm. um, and uh, when we when we did our analyses of uh, you know mm. again what, how boards spend their time and board composition and so on we found private equity boards, are on average smaller than public market boards, and on average, the board members spend twice as much time as their public market board people do. Now, hmm. you might say private equity is absolutely not anyone's image of uh, of short term uh, invest of, of, lo- of long term investors, right? Surely that's about you know trying to flip the company and so on. But I think what they would say is, look, when they have an average hold period of five years, uh, more or less. Uh, that's a lot longer than the average U.S. equity hold, public equity holding period. And in addition, when they're selling the company, they're selling it to someone else who will have a hold period of five years. So you've got to really have a 10-year strategy that, uh, that that goes with that. So I think they can make a reasonably compelling case that uh, they actually have the liberty to be a little bit more long-term focused than the noise of the public markets. Mm-hmm. Now what um, um again back to uh, Bill McNabb and Harry Fink and I'm sure others in that uh, in that industry would say is it's a real shame that people are seeing private equity ownership as a uh, preferred form of ownership to public uh, equity mm-hmm. ownership and the decline yeah. of publicly traded companies not in market cap but the number of publicly traded mm-hmm. companies in the US has gone down pretty considerably in the last uh, two mm-hmm. decades. Um, I think, in part, yeah. because of some of these—well, part of it's consolidation, but in part also because of some of these pressures, uh, the perceived pressures, uh, real and perceived pressures, rather that come with uh, being uh, uh, being a public company, that people feel they can be more sheltered from as a uh, as a private company.
0: Mm. Do you see that trend continuing?
2: We certainly see. Um, I think we do. I think we do. I mean, I think we certainly see uh, the you know s- substantial growth in private equity and in the attractions for some companies of going private. I guess the other side of that would be what does it really mean for the IPO market? And you're going right. to see new public companies. I don't know that we uh, that we have a view on that.
0: Mm-hmm. And and what does that mean for investing, especially for short or long term investments?
2: So, what people in the fund management industry would say is, uh, you know, if, uh, if there's a lot of investment that is only available to private investors, yeah. then that's a shame for the American public, right. because most of that is not accessible to the average investor. Um, and um uh you know and that uh, and that and that therefore mm-hmm. reduces you know reduces options um i think what you know what, what managers yeah. would say is it's actually nice to have a you know a choice of a choice of structures you can operate in so it kind of probably depends on what side of the table mm-hmm. you sit on
1: huh. boy Rodney beginning to uh, bring our time to a close here let me offer uh, kind of an interpretation of your commentary very interesting mm-hmm. and i think it to me it sums up with the point that there are choices to be made. Markets are impersonal. The forces of history are enormous. Having said <laughs> that, uh, directors and top executives can make a difference. Well, you said, it. what does it take? It takes courage. they got to measure it. They have to articulate it. And so I think to maybe to pull the, the thread out of all of the above, uh, as you look at the C-suites of companies and then boardrooms, history is a little bit in their hands, or maybe more than a little bit. And so my guess is that's one reason you wrote the book.
2: <laughs> I'm not sure a reason was quite as grandiose. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it would be uh, a okay. interesting was, way to have some conversation. I was <laughs> over, the, over the top on that one. No, but Saving it's over, the world. Yes. But it's a, very ni- it's a very nice way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, I, it clearly, um, this may sound trite, but clearly, yeah. you need to know where you're going, right? Yeah. And companies can do well for a while through better operations and through cost cutting, but you know we have an analysis that says if you you can grow your margins, you can grow profit faster than you can grow revenue for three years in a row, and on average beat the stock market performance in your uh, uh, in, in your industry. But after three years, it becomes hard, right? You can't mm-hmm. without getting revenue growth, without you know having a new, real kind of long term story. It's going to be hard to be uh, to be that exciting to your investors. Um, or to create wealth and create jobs for yep. your employees. There's another um, uh, uh, nice quote from George Buckley in the book. I uh, <laughs> had a you know just a very exciting story about 3M, and he had an observation which is it's sort of obvious, but it's very com- it kind of it sounded compelling as he said it. Which is, you know, every company has a core that is shrinking, right? Uh-huh. Or a core, he didn't say shrinking. He said a core that is dying, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, every company has a core that is dying, right? By definition, that's kind of the old part of the company, and it's the CEO's job. To figure out, you know what, what you know, what else there's going to be right? What the new core? What you know? What's, what's going to happen beyond that?
1: Oh. Rodney, let's uh, close with uh, maybe one more illustrative example. We briefly re- referenced Alan Mulally as he came into Ford, had mm. run commercial aircraft production at Boeing. With uh, a little bit less than two minutes to go, what did Alan Mulally do at Ford that really almost paradigmatically brings out the account that you've described tonight?
2: Um. So he, he, you know, his story is one of the better known stories in the book, but it is a very nice example of, uh, of tying it all together, right? So it started with a purpose, right? Of kind of the great company he wanted Ford to become again. Um, and then he had, there's a, we reproduce the page in the book, but he had a one pager that was really just in mm-hmm. one simple page, his, his, his philosophy of how he, uh, he, 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 you know, wanted to lead and unite the company. Um, and it started with people and with openness and with transparency. But then it had a very clear operating system around it of how he wanted the team to get together and to meet and to have uh, kind of a, a, a full and open conversation around how things were really going and around where they needed to go. Um, and really was able through purpose and through clarity of vision to unite first his management team, which I think he described as being actually a harder battle than the investors. I think the investors were maybe so fed up with them that kind of mm-hmm. he was able to you know to maybe focus on them less for a while. Um, but really unite his management team, the company, and frankly the broader community. And he has a very uh, you know to me the most compelling part of his vision is kind of profitable growth for all, where he talks about mm-hmm. it really only works if all stakeholders, so the investors the the, uh, the company leadership, the employees, but also the entire supply chain and the community uh, are succeeding. Um, and his, you know, his operating system is his way of achieving that profitable growth for all.
1: Rodney, right, great commentary yeah. to conclude with. We really appreciate your being on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I learned, a lot. <laughs> <We have> learned <laughs> a lot. Thank you. <laughs>